0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. Coming up soon is my friend Ryan Williams. Ryan is the president of the Claremont Institute and the publisher of the Claremont Review of Books. But before that, I want to talk to you guys about something that happened to me this past weekend, and specifically really what happened to my girlfriend this past weekend, actually. You could tell this is getting personal already, and that is indeed the case here. It is deeply personal. We were back in Chicago, which is a city where I lived in for three years. It's where I went to law school. I was back for kind of alumni-related stuff with respect to an organization I was involved with on campus there, and over the weekend... We were at a bar, my girlfriend and I, and three of my friends from my time in Chicago, just kind of catching up. And a panhandler comes into the bar. We were not in a particularly terrible spot in this city, let me convey that. It was not kind of the deep south side or anything like that. This was a fairly mainstream kind of affluent, normal spot, not the kind of place where you'd expect a a bar to openly let in a homeless person and or a panhandler down into the premises. So that was the first problem. So the panhandler comes up to our table and he refuses to go away. He's holding this bizarre sign that is asking for donations so he could buy Popeye's chicken nuggets. And he refuses to leave. We asked the bartenders to kick this guy out numerous times to no avail. About maybe five or six minutes later, he finally leaves. About 15 minutes later, we realized what had happened. He used the Popeye's chicken nuggets sign to conceal the fact that he was stealing my girlfriend's very nice purse with everything that was in it. Wallet, cash, phone, the entire thing. It was a horrific, horrific incident. Obviously, immediately tried to file a police report. Not that Chicago police particularly cares about this sort of incident, obviously. The city of Chicago is routinely up in flames with homicides, drive-by shootings, carjackings, gangbangers, you name it. This is Chicago we're talking about here. But the fact that this could happen, again, in a relatively kind of affluent, safe, normal part where you know relatively well to do successful working professionals could live is abhorrent and it speaks just of the culture of anarchy and lawlessness that has now kind of taken over in America's big cities again just look focusing on homicides in particular homicides dramatically escalated obviously in the year 2020 in the aftermath ...of the George Floyd race riots that entire summer. That trend has only continued further in 2021 or 2022. Now, to clarify here, no one was physically injured... ...as a result of what happened this past weekend in Chicago. It has just simply been an absolute disaster to deal with. It has been horrible. Chicago police has been completely incompetent. The owner of this establishment, you know, I, we'll see what happens here... ...but I, I, they have not necessarily been the easiest to work with themselves... But this is, it is just disgusting conduct. I mean, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, the Democratic mayor of Chicago, who has let this culture kind of just happen, where panhandlers go into restaurants in well-to-do neighborhoods, cannot be kicked out because of some ridiculous BS sympathy with the victim or the homeless person, whatever we're calling it, and then can get away absconding with a purse, and then police don't respond to it. Just disgusting stuff here. And it obviously takes us back to what we were talking about on, on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, what I referred to as kind of the civilizational suicide of criminal justice reform. This idea here that people of both parties in America have come to mollycoddle victims, to kind of mollycoddle criminals to say that, oh, the criminal can't be locked up for too long, or, oh, they have to have easier access to bail and things of that nature. no. No, that is not how it works. If there is one reason why just and sound governments should be instituted among men, it is to secure peace, prosperity, security, and law and order for people who abide by the law. It completely reverses the causal chain here. Governments exist to protect us and secure us. And yes, you know, secure our natural rights. We we could talk about that aspect of the American founding, perhaps with our guests coming up soon. We probably will discuss that, in fact. But this entire culture of just letting homeless people and panhandlers go into private establishments, abscond with thefts, to not prosecute crime. I was hanging out with another friend in Chicago. You know what? He lives like a few blocks away from where the Jussie Smollett incident transpired, actually. He was pointing out to me a Target store where during the race riots of the summer of 2020 was just completely smashed in with impunity. And impunity because when the government announces apparently that there is a riot, insurers are effectively let off the hook. I'm not an expert in insurance law, but my understanding is that insurers are generally let off the hook when the actual government officials declare a riot. So uh, what I saw in Chicago, again, I lived in Chicago for three years. It it was a fairly enjoyable three years. I'm I'm not going to just totally crap on the city. Big city Democratic mayors like Lori Lightfoot in particular are letting this country go to hell in a handbasket. So shame on you, Lori Lightfoot. Get a freaking grip. On the other side, hopefully a cheerier conversation with my good friend Ryan Williams. Stay with us. We are thrilled this week to be joined by my friend Ryan Williams. Ryan is the president of the Claremont Institute and the publisher of the Claremont Review of Books, one of the absolute best conservative publications out there. So, Ryan, thanks so much for joining us this week.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Josh.
0: Yeah, of course. So, you know, let's dive right in here. So, there's kind of a phrase that, I, unless you're deeply kind of plugged into the discourse, so to speak, might sound like a little cryptic, but I think it's kind of its origin is in Claremont circles, but I think it at this point is, is kind of sufficiently pervaded kind of the right of center discussion. And it's this idea from our friend, Dave boy, like, do you know what time it is? Can you kind of explain that a little bit? Maybe, maybe Claremont explain, if you will, to the listeners, what that question is <laughs> referring to and why it is an important question to ask if you're on the right in the year 2022.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's kind of a nice heuristic for, um, uh, judging and assessing where people are on the right. So do you know what time it is? Or, or or it's often used as a as a chastisement, which is he doesn't know or she doesn't know what time it is. Uh, and it's just the the notion that, look, after a century of liberalism, longer than a century of liberalism, uh, and that kind of galloping regime crisis that has been um, building up since the late 60s and is now kind of out of crisis, uh you know we we conservatism rightism whatever you want to call it uh has to be cognizant of the fact that we are we're in a real regime crisis that uh you know that uh, history is not going always in one direction this uh country of ours this government of ours this way of life of ours could come to a screeching halt and even collapse and so uh we need to act with a sense of urgency Uh, Our institutions are corrupt, Um, our cultural and political institutions have been captured by the left, and uh, the leading edge of the left seems hell-bent on remaking the country that is on a revolution. So conservatism, uh, if it's going to be serious about what time it is, needs to be almost counter-revolutionary. It can't merely conserve the good things that we all hold dear. Uh, we need to act with much, much more urgency and uh, as if our lives depended on it, which they do. So, the, you know, the old sort of uh, old sort of proceduralism, whether it be in jurisprudence or anything else, something close to your heart, uh, we, we have to think anew and think uh, more fundamentally about things.
0: Right. So, I mean, it seems to me. What you're saying, and I obviously agree with this, is you know the old school kind of idea of conservatism is just kind of an attitudinal disposition towards you know old school kind of Burkean traditionalism or epistemological humility. It, the time is just the the hour is too late for that, and the means have to be a little more pliable to kind of restore the ends that we properly cherish, which of course are the kind of the ends of the American founding. So you know I, I think back, you had a great Substack post. Maybe it was about a year ago or so. I remember quoting it in my National Conservatism Conference speech in Orlando this past fall. And you said in this, in this post, quote, "...the stakes are high and the time to fight is now, wielding whatever levers of power are available." Then a little later on, you said, quote, the right needs to think less dogmatically and more creatively about defending its friends and constituents and exchanging tit for tat. So I, I totally agree with that. I have more or less said the same thing in any number of kind of writings and speeches. What, what would be your response, though, to those critics on, you know, the, the broad right of center? I guess or at least they would say they're broad right of center who say that we're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater when we talk in, that, in those kind of terms
1: yeah well, it, I mean, just because we have a <clears throat> we're thinking sort of radically or in an urgent way about our current crisis doesn't mean we need to abandon our principles. Uh, you know, I mean actually the the American founders are a good model for this sort of thing. Uh, you know they <laughs> they were happy to act creatively and constitutionally uh, as political actors wielding the power of their various offices where they held them. Uh, and less concerned they were less concerned with sort of not I don't want to see legal niceties but uh, to act and think constitutionally is is to abandon a kind of stodgy proceduralism for um, a, a politics of um, uh, winning <laughs> for lack of a better term. So uh, look we, we're not we're not our argument and I know your argument as well as mine is not uh, you know, all means are valid to pursue this end or the end that we want, which is the restoration of constitutional government authorizes all means. But uh, at the same time, we, we need to, uh, you know, the, the the conservatism of the last 20 years or so, or maybe even 30 years, act, acted as if, uh, you know, fundamental f- issues weren't at stake. That we're the right and the left really disagree on policy and we trade power, uh, Uh, And that's just, that's just untenable these days. So we have to act as if the left, which is true, uh, really wants to, uh, the the culmination of a hundred year project of the left is, is not the maintenance of constitutional government and disputes over policy, but rather the overthrowing of constitutional government, Uh, really the destruction of the constitution, the destruction of the separation of powers. So we need to act uh, in that sense. And that means uh, our, you know, our, Prudence means that you, uh, you know, you do the least harm and do the most good. And in the current moment, that means a kind of more bare knuckled uh, politics and even constitutional politics. And so we, we, uh, whereas maybe fifty years ago we would have been perfectly content to operate within the bounds of uh, n- normal political times. Right now, we're we're in a real crisis, so we we need to uh, we need to get back to our roots, that is the founders, and uh, act creatively and with uh, great constitutional
0: force. So what is the proper way then to think of means and ends? Because, you know, uh, m- m- mutual friends of ours, friends who I will not necessarily say on yeah. the air, um, you know, sometimes will like hear the rhetoric that I just kind of quoted you on and some similar rhetoric that I've used. And they'll say that we're kind of, uh, you know, right wing Alinskyites, right, where the where the means can always be tailored to achieve the ends at any cost whatsoever. But, you know, you literally properly, I think, just said that, that 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 is not our stance or it should not be our stance. So what is the proper way then to kind of think of the means ends relationship as far as advancing a right of center politics, statesmanship, jurisprudence, the, you know, the whole the whole nine yards, if you will?
1: yeah well i mean you know lincoln's a good model for this um i don't want to go uh well i mean his argument was <clears throat> you know are all the laws but one to go <clears throat> unenforced um and he was invoking that his suspension of habeas corpus uh that is uh the uh the right of folks to be uh when they're detained to have uh, a judge in front of them um you know he <laughs> the end in mind is the preservation of constitutional government. Uh, that's our end. Um, the means that we need to utilize are have to be constitutional and within our constitutional tradition. Um, but, uh, there's a lot more wiggle room in there than we think. Uh, and the founders certainly thought of enacted, uh, as constitutional ofteners uh, officers, um, a little more creatively and, and, um, uh, powerfully than we do today, so I, uh, we we so for example, I mean one concrete example. I know you, it's close to both of our hearts. Um, should we retake the White House, uh, our Republican administra- administration retake the White House? Uh, you know, say some district judge out in Hawaii, as happened under the Trump administration, basically issues a universal injunction barring some immigration policy, uh, and and sets thus setting the policy for the whole country. I think um, you know the founders would agree, and Lincoln would agree, uh, that the while the, the president is bound uh, in that case and with the parties before that court, uh, a district judge some in some far flung state can't set national policy. So a responsible administration would say, "It fine binds the parties in the case, but we're going to act. We're going to act as we see fit elsewhere across the country." Uh, this kind of thinking is foreign to the right these days, after <clears throat> um, you know 30 or 40 years of modern jurisprudence. And they would say the right, or a certain portion of the right, and even some of, of our friends would say such an action would be lawless. But we would our response should be, no, the ultimate law is the constitution. The president is a constitutional officer. Uh, he takes an oath. Uh, it's the only uh, written oath in the constitution uh, that's actually set forth in, in writing. Uh, and he has an obligation to uphold his oath and uphold the Constitution, and uh, you know beyond the parties in a case from some district judge, he's not bound by that. That kind of thinking, which was not foreign at all to the founders or to, to Lincoln or or others, we've sort of lost, and we're 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 caught up in a kind of legalistic notion of constitutional action, and we need to uh, we need to get out of it.
0: Yeah, no, we really do, obviously, and you know, I mean, of course the you know, the spiritual founder of, of your institution, Claremont, Harry Jaffa, of course, you know, sparred over and over again, of course, over the decades with the late Justice Antonin Scalia about kind of this yeah. this view of jurisprudence, of course, Jaffa tied it to, to Lincoln and his treatment of the Dred Scott case. Um, but let, let's kind of take it more back to kind of um, the practical and specifically, I guess, more the overtly political. So I, I was reviewing your your speech to the conference that I mentioned earlier, the National Conservative Conference in Orlando in um, uh, last fall, I guess it was. And towards the end, you say something really interesting. You say here, um, you you say, quote, "...in the face of a sclerotic, half-competent, and yet dishonest, entrenched, and corrupt federal establishment, the cause and contours of a a sober-minded American nationalism may only be meaningfully advanced by leaders at the state level." Um, so, you know, I, I think there's obviously a lot of attention going on here to what's happening in Florida. I mean, my current state with Governor DeSantis and everything with the recent Disney fight and all of that. Is, is that primarily what you have in mind as far as kind of pushing back against the Leviathan is kind of what's happening here, perhaps more than anywhere else down in Florida?
1: Yeah, it helps to be the governor of the third largest state in the union. But I think all, governor, all right-thinking governors, all right thinking governors should be pushing back against the federal government and uh, uh, pushing the envelope as it were. You know, They have a duty to protect the rights of their citizens. And then you know, we need to recognize that the modern sort of rights regime issuing out of the federal government, um, uh, especially in, in light of a warped view of the Civil Rights Act of, the, of 1964 and this new kind of racialized politics it's not the only area, but it's, it's one of the main areas, uh, is is sort of antithetical to the protection of rights. So uh, governors ought to push back against that and ought to force the federal government to act. Uh, you know, we're not talking about nullification or secession or anything like that, but rather uh, a full-throated federalism, uh, the type of which was completely foreseen by and written about uh, in the Federalist Papers, which is, you know, one of the protection of rights against an overweening federal government is, is state, um, you know, state resistance.
0: Let's take it to a quick commercial break here. You're with Ryan Williams. Stay with us. We will be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. This week we are with Ryan Williams, president of the Claremont Institute and publisher of the Claremont Review of Books. So, Ryan, with that kind of theory and kind of grasping of the stakes and the time, so to speak, kind of in the backdrop here, let's kind of take it down to the more tangible and the more policy. So one thing that I find really interesting has been this whole kind of discussion, actually, of political economy, specifically, really kind of since... I mean, really, I guess since kind of you know Trump back in the summer of 2015 went down that escalator in Trump Tower, but certainly since his presidency, you've kind of seen the explosion of kind of a more kind of robust nationalist school of thought on political economy, kind of modeled on you know on strategic tariffs to kind of reshore manufacturing and supply chain, family policy, um, kind of Central Eastern European style about kind of direct payments to families for raising children, all of that. Walk us through kind of your thoughts on where the right and kind of political economy and industrial policy and and, and all of that kind of is right now and where you think this conversation should go from here.
1: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the, w- we ought to orient ourselves fundamentally towards the preservation and uh, expansion of a healthy middle class. I mean, going, g- going all the way back to our ancient political philosophers, you know, a stable republic, small r republic, needs a healthy middle class. And to the extent that our policies have um, undermined the prosperity and security of the middle class, we ought to change them. Uh, so that's that's the sort of principle that we need to orient ourselves around. So whereas, you know, a certain kind of conservatism or republicanism over the last 30 years, and my, my colleague Charles Kessler and others have written about this you know, we kind of get frozen in this policy basket, uh, which includes the term free trade. Uh, uh, you know, trade is always, always occurs in a context. Uh, every country really has an industrial policy. They just either admit it or they don't. Uh, and you know, that's about making choices. So, uh, it might, and it means it means trade-offs, right? So you might, uh, you might uh, in the pursuit of paying your workers a little more, you sh- you might restrict immigration quite a bit, uh, and that means that some uh, prices will go up a little bit uh, in certain sectors. For example, maybe uh, food service or 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 elsewhere where low cost labor is a major factor of production. Um, but we ought to shoulder that price increase uh, in in the pursuit of the health and. Uh, prosperity of the middle class, because ultimately, I mean, the, the the middle class needs to be healthy for the regime to be healthy. And it gets back to one of our um, themes that started off the last segment, which is, you know, this country can collapse uh, with a radical left sort of relentlessly driving it towards, you know, to, to driving all of us towards the overturning of any notion of, of nature or natural right. Uh, men can be women, women can be men. Uh, we need to teach our children, that uh, especially a certain class of children that is white kids to hate themselves because of their ancestors. I mean, this kind of uh, really destructive racialized uh, class politics uh, is, you know, can bring us down. And one bulwark against that is a, a thriving common sense middle class that uh, and we've seen it across school boards and critical race theory and the, the rejection of all this across the country, which is a normal, sensible middle class. That is working working parents wanting to raise their families, raise healthy kids uh, to be good citizens you know kind of reject reject this madness and uh, to the extent that we can pursue an economic policy that bolsters those people and and makes them secure uh, it, it should be pursued uh, rather than some dogmatic attachment to quote unquote free trade um, so that's that should be our approach
0: yeah I mean it seems to me I studied economics in college, worked in the field between college and law school for a couple of years. At some point, it's tough to pinpoint exactly where, but I think kind of the bipartisan uniparty neoliberal establishment basically seems to have settled on the fact that we as an economy would prioritize consumption over production, which which is itself is obviously a value judgment, right? I mean, that, that decision to prioritize consumption— is a value judgment. So we have therefore kind of prioritized cheaper goods, but you know, I mean, we have now seen in recent years, obviously kind of the beginning of COVID and the American reliance on China for PPE being a kind of notable example of, you know, we very much have in, at least in many ways have kind of given our arch geopolitical foes, the rope with which to hang ourselves. And it's been it's been really encouraging for me to kind of see, you know, some, some Republicans, some kind of right of center people more broadly kind of grasp that some of these, you know, bromides. And I, and I, and I hear you kind of like flippantly scoffing at, at the notion of free trade as a, as a good unto itself, which I obviously agree with. It's been really encouraging, honestly, to kind of see that that, that conversation go forward. Um, but more generally speaking, it's not just the trade issue, right? I mean, it's this notion of just a more liberal approach to both economics and politics, more broadly speaking here. So the big tech issue, right? I mean, this is an issue that I think a previous generation of kind of right-of-center thinkers would have totally scoffed at the idea that the American right should have any kind of hands-on role in regulating these guys. You know, it's private actors, after all. Let them do what they want. You and I both know how these arguments tend to go here but we seem to be winning on this issue and we being kind of the more kind of muscular hands-on right of center crowd. So I I take it that you're optimistic about that. And do you think that kind of militates? uh, Well, just one of you just tell me about where you kind of think the big tech fight is right now and how much we can move the ball forward on that.
1: Yeah, I I think, um, you know, the history of antitrust action in the, in the country is instructive. Um, look, we, we we need to be sober minded about this, and our libertarian friends have uh, plenty of good points, which is that there are lots of unintended consequences of manipulating markets. and we, we need to acknowledge that uh, and uh, and proceed cautiously. But the, it remains true that the digital, as our our friend and my colleague James Pullis has argued, you know the the digital transformation of American life, uh, is significant and uh, maybe even comprehensive, and we need to acknowledge that we have a new kind of public digital public square. And uh, to the extent that large uh, quasi-monopolistic or oligopolistic uh, companies, a few of them, you know, take Twitter, Facebook, or even Google Search, et cetera, sort of, uh, you know, rather than providing a neutral venue in which we can argue about things and look for information and deliberate together as small r Republican fellow citizens, to the extent that those avenues of, of discourse are manipulated uh, even uh, you know, sort of out, of out of plain sight and secretly, uh, w- the government has to take a role and has to take a view of these sorts of things. I mean, Google's a great example, right? They can manipulate, it's sort of the global search, it dominates global searches. So if you wanna find out information about how to conduct yourself in your daily life, and, and especially how to how you ought to inform yourself about your government and what it's doing to the extent that, that that those search searches are manipulated uh in ways that are not transparent and thus alter the flow of information and and uh manipulate how we deliberate about public things that's of course something that that we have to take uh, an interest in and even a policy interest in so that's no longer uh, it's no longer merely a private company uh for, for, for you know, uh, it's, it's now engaged in something other than merely private business, and and this is a long. There's a long track of this in jurisprudence uh, and in and, and American political thinking, which is to say, you know, when a certain activity becomes public and vital to to the uh, the pursuit, our, our collective pursuit of public prosperity and the common good. Uh, the government can't be indifferent to how it conducts its business, and that doesn't mean you know that we're going to go uh, arbitrarily seize assets or anything like that. But it does mean that the government uh, needs to take uh, an interest in this. And as I said, our, our libertarian friends are right; we need to proceed cautiously. But but we can't just uh, say it's a private company and thus it can do whatever it wants.
0: So, what's your specific take on Elon Musk and Twitter? Out of curiosity, are you? And, <laughs> and I'd be I'd be most curious also if you're. If you're troubled by the looming kind of that China thing, you know, kind of looming over our, our shoulder, you know, Elon obviously is, uh, y- you know, I don't want to say he's friendly with the with the Chinese government. That would be drastically overstating the case, but he he certainly has had friendly overtures in the past. I guess we would say
1: right. Yeah, no, it's a. I mean, uh, for perfectly self interested capitalist reasons, right? Uh, it's a huge market, and so uh, people want to be able to apply their goods in in China. They'll make tons of money. So we have to be clear, clear eyed about that sort of thing. Um, but no, I, I've been encouraged by Elon's um, overtures and then take over, well, it's still in the works, of course, but of Twitter. Um, you know he seemed his heart seems to be in the right place. So we ought to take his um, his rhetoric about this at face value, which is to say, Twitter should be a neutral platform, free speech is important. Uh, you know he talks about it as a digital public square, uh, and his friend Mark Mark Andreessen, who's gotten more. Um, uh, more uh, volume, you know, uh, more active on Twitter in, in the last year or so. Uh, you can kind of see this this section of the big tech uh, leadership. That is to say, the, the the rich guys who've been playing in it for a long time. And there's a certain segment of them that, that seem to think that um, uh, Matt, you know, crazy leftism is is bad uh, and censorious, and we ought not to impose those values on this important venue of public deliberation, uh, Twitter and elsewhere. So you know we we should take them at their word. Uh, we should trust but verify and uh, just keep an eye on 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 the on the China question as you say and and uh, we don't need to prejudge it. We can judge them by their actions. So so far I've been pretty hardened by Elon's uh, Elon's work in uh, acquiring
0: Twitter. Yeah, no, I have I have too, to be clear. I mean, I very much kind of have like a trust but verify approach to this entire situation, like you just said. Yeah. But I, when I think about the problems with big tech like at a more structural level, and we're really starting to see, I mean, we we we, we have seen, I should say, kind of a, a, a parallel troublesome trend in financial institutions and kind of debanking, which kind of seems like it's the next deplatforming of sorts. And this is kind of the big question that I feel like I've had a, a version of this conversation with friends so many times over the past couple of years. Is we see the rise obviously of censorious actors acting within purportedly private institutions, whether they're technology companies, whether they're financial institutions, education, uh, you know, accreditation institutions, whatever. And the idea here is to effectively kind of unperson, right? The deplorables, effectively unperson half the country's population. And The basic things that come to mind as far as what to do about that is one, obviously we could create parallel infrastructure. So for example, you know, that's what right forge is doing obviously when it comes to kind of uh, cloud space and kind of uh, a, a, you know, a, a new company that can challenge the monopolistic tendencies of Amazon web services. The other alternative obviously is to just start nationalizing industries, which historically is not necessarily the right way to go about this, but Maybe there's a third ground that I'm missing here. I mean, I I don't know. I I, I always struggle with this question because I, I genuinely just don't know what the right approach is myself. So I'd, I'd be really curious what your thoughts are.
1: Yeah, no, I mean it's um it's one of the most complicated and most important policy issues of our time. Um, I mean, actually, you know, one of the better, uh, one of our better libertarian friends on this is uh, uh, Richard Epstein who is uh, you know, is a is sort of a, uh, uh, a committed libertarian in the protection of rights, but also as uh, a good student of history and political history, uh, you know, going all the all the way back to ancient Rome and even jurisprudential doctrines, and that is to say, you know, at a certain point, you have to prohibit private companies and private actors from restraining uh, individual rights, including free speech. Um, and so, you know, there are certain means without which you can't function as a uh, responsible citizen. So, you know, y- your your rights are not secure and you can't act, you know, you can't participate in public life or even private life to a certain extent if you can't, you know, hold funds in a bank account or you can't, uh, you don't have any means to um, the public press, broadly speaking, you, you can't voice your opinion in any sphere. So that's, you know, there's no bright line, there are no bright lines here, we have to approach this kind of in a principled way, uh, but a prudential way. Um, But I I think the sort of common sense view is is good, which is to say, you ought not to be removed from society, and removed from the financial sector, uh, and and sort of uh, prohibited from making a living, preserving your wealth, uh, supporting your family just because of political views that you express. So that's the principle. Uh, you know, the, the policy details are interesting and they're always changing. But I think nor, normal Americans across the political spectrum, I think would agree that just because you have some, you know, even take the extreme example, just because you have very distasteful or even offensive views, doesn't mean that you need, you uh, you know, can't make a living and have to somehow uh you know scratch away uh on the periphery of society uh with you know i I don't know i don't know how you you know hand to mouth or bartering or whatever i mean if you can't make a living and preserve your living that is your property there's uh that's a fundamental natural right in the american system uh, and it's a right by nature uh, uh, you know it's a precept of justice that transcends any political community so those things you know you can't You can't have private companies um, sort of, well, we should say, you know, you can't have the government kind of acting and colluding with private companies to deprive your ability to support your family. That, That has to be a red line.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, the blurring of the purported public-private distinction, which I think is what you're getting at, that is the key thematic point to take away here. I'm actually flying up to D.C. this Thursday just for a quick day trip. I'm going to be on a panel at the Heritage Foundation on the interaction between big tech and the First Amendment and, you know, kind of the specific kind of legal questions raised therein and the extent to which that distinction is blurred. I mean, put in more concrete terms, if like Jen Psaki is like literally working with Mark Zuckerberg to censor, quote unquote, COVID misinformation, that, you know, that seems like a, that seems like a potential First Amendment problem. So I do think that that is the right way to go about this. Um, I, I'm heartened that to hear that you mentioned Richard Epstein, actually, which is really funny. I mean, I had, I had Professor Epstein twice in law school, actually. He, oh, yeah. He, yeah, He's actually a funny character, because he does kind of defy the libertarian stereotype sometimes. I remember when I took him for criminal procedure, actually, my first year of law school, He came out and openly defended Terry versus Ohio, the 1960s era case that effectively kind of, uh, you know, put a a constitutional imprimatur of legitimacy upon the police tactic of stop and frisk, which I think a lot of people would think, you know, Richard Epstein wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Right. But he kind of always every so often does surprise us. But um, Ryan, we're unfortunately a bit out of time here. So for the listeners, where can they find you and where can they find Claremont as well?
1: Yeah, Thanks, Josh. Uh, well, our main website is claremont.org, uh, claremontreviewbooks.com, our, our, our quarterly publication, and then AmericanMind.org. Uh, and then finally, our newest that's uh, just a year old now, run by our friend Arthur Millick, our DC Center, uh, org.
0: All right. Well, Ryan Williams, thanks so much for joining us, my friend.
1: Thanks, Josh.
0: Well, conservatives and right of center people, more generally speaking, whether it's from the political arena or indeed whether it's actually from the judicial arena or the administrative arena, any of these arenas, when you completely kind of forsake the idea of actually imposing an agenda, of trying to construct, of trying to kind of build a society, and certainly I think from Ryan's perspective and the perspective perspective of the Claremont Institute, his employer, that you know, that goal would basically be kind of the principles and tenets. Of the American Founding, but when you let that go, when you are simply content with just kind of pleading for a values naked public square and kind of a a live and let live setting, let each person, let each government bureaucrat, etc., do what he or she wants to do, then what it does amount to is a one way cultural ratchet towards the kind of cultural arson cesspool where we are today. You arrive at a place where woke corporations who have seen the quote-unquote right-of-center response, which is a response that is completely hands-off, a response that is, that is tethered to kind of neoliberal bromides about taxes, regulation, antitrust. You've seen woke corporations that just go in there, mollycoddle up to the left, because the left has snuck in, obviously, with the New York Times editorial board, all the various institutions, and they just want to be liked. Okay, The corporations fundamentally just want to be liked. And in so doing there, when they see that kind of the, the people who can grant them that nice feeling to be liked have snuck it into all the other institutions. I mean, the, the problem of the universities obviously goes back well over 100 years now. I mean, William F. Buckley wrote God a Man in Yale in the early 1950s, for goodness sake. And he, that was that ship had already sailed by them. But at that point, what you see with the proliferation of woke capital and this highly, deeply controversial promulgation of of, of certain policies within the corporate boardroom, like obviously critical race theory, indoctrination, and, and things like that, the incentive structure is fundamentally misaligned. and. You know, on the last podcast, when we had on Monica Crowley, this is what we were teasing out with the Ron DeSantis versus Disney fight and why I think it is such a potentially pivotal, indispensable inflection point and why I really just have zero tolerance whatsoever for those on our so called side who are challenging what has happened here. In fact, it was literally this past weekend when the Wall Street Journal had a report. The report basically said, and it was, you know, the journal obviously is deeply connected, to put it mildly, when it comes to kind of the CEOs and the Fortune 500 and kind of big business in general. The journal's report basically said that after what happened down here in Florida, CEOs are scared, that they are scared of retribution, that the shot across the bow of what Governor DeSantis and Florida Republicans did here to Disney with respect to the 1967 special taxing zone, whose status was recently revoked, that they now are going to calm down and they are going to tame their appetite for woke-splaining and performative virtue signaling for half the population in a way that redounds against the interests of the deplorables, of sane Americans, and, and all of that. Our vision of the good here means punishing corporations that are advocating for grooming children. If we cannot get over some ridiculous conception of mistaken first amendment case law and get behind that then what the hell are we doing here then what the actual hell are we doing here we at that point we have just totally mistaken kind of ad hoc approach to law and policy for the ends of governance itself thanks so much for listening this week i'm josh hammer we'll see you next week